Shrink Wrap Radio number 831, Ed Tick, Ph.D., on Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My return guest today, internationally acclaimed author, therapist, and journey leader, Edward Tick, Ph.D., LMHC, brings ancient healing wisdoms alive in his forthcoming book, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimages. Soul Medicine depicts histories and case studies of healings achieved and lives transformed using practices from the classical ancient world in psychotherapy, mentorship, and in nearly 50 pilgrimages to Greece and Vietnam. Tick has led from 1995 through 2022. This book demystifies ancient healing wisdom in order to help restore soul and spirit to psychology, medicine, and transformative healing practices today. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Ed Tick, welcome back to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you, Dr. Dave. I'm honored to be back with you again, and I believe this is our third conversation on your program. Uh, so I'm thanking you for all of them, past and present. And well, thank you. For everything. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of your work, and um, I think it's been about a year, actually, since you were last on the show, and uh, we were speaking about your, uh, your book, Coming Home in Vietnam, which was... A, a wonderful book, and we're going to be discussing your latest book today, which is also a very wonderful book. But I want to kind of jump into it in a, in a somewhat different way. I was telling you uh, before turning on the recorder, one of the things that really impressed me about this book was to it was a chance to really it's a really covers your life, you know, and uh, in a very deep way. And uh, so you know, I kind of thought I knew you. And then I read this book and I discover, whoa, <laughs> I hadn't scratched the surface. And so I'm really looking forward to uh, going through that with you. Um, we had to reschedule well, me, this. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm going to thank you for that as well. We both practice and believe in study uh, transpersonal and humanistic psychology fields. So, and we both affirm that 
what may, what uh, is popularly called alternative state, alternate states of consciousness or non-normative experiences. Yeah. Both of us affirm that the humanistic and archetypal and transpersonal fields affirm those as real, uh, welcome their report, and more importantly, uh, in our world of uh, evidence-based work, people's experiences themselves are the evidence. We don't give enough credence to the actual experience people have unless there's a thousand of them and we've measured uh, what is normative between those. Uh, in our schools of, of psychology, we affirm the importance of original primal experience and that, yes. that is the evidence for what we've experienced, what's troubling us, and how to move forward on the healing path. So yes. I did take a little risk and uh, share a lot of my own non-normative experiences that uh, taught me about uh, the, the Greek tradition and how to use it today, as well as um, many uh, clients and travelers that I facilitated. And also, of course, the ancients, as we are looking together to reclaim our ancient roots and to be able to have, to be unified with science and spirit rather than divorce them and to seek those types of experiences that the ancients reported. Yes. It's all possible. So I want to get uh, personal with you here. We had to reschedule your meeting today uh, due to the death of your mother. So please yeah. accept my condolences for your loss. I understand that you're, you're still in process with that. In this latest yeah, book you. of yours, you describe goddess powers as a kind of shorthand for referring to clusters of archetypal characteristics. If you think about your mother that way, what were her goddess powers? Wow. Thank you for launching right into this conversation. Thank you. As we say, including our experiences, you're immediately, including a transformational life experience that I've just had over the yeah. last few weeks. So, uh, thank you for that and for immediately projecting us onto the archetypal level. So, regarding my mother, I have worked with the archetypes uh, from uh, not just the, the Greek tradition, but from other traditions as well. Uh, our biblical tradition is, of course, loaded with archetypes. The Bible is our foundational mythology for Western civilization, along with the Greek. Um, so let, let's share with our listeners first that I do use the phrase God powers and goddess powers mm -hmm. throughout my book. And I mean the same thing as we mean when we say gods or goddesses. However, I want to free our conception of them from the fundamentalist. So if I'm talking about Aphrodite, I'm talking about the goddess powers that she represents, right. which are primarily love sexuality, passion, beauty, uh, and it's not that there's really an Aphrodite in the cosmos. There really is the archetype yeah, that we yeah. call Aphrodite, and other cultures name uh, her with different names, different stories, uh, a different vision, 
but it's really the same. So you and I are working in the archetypal tradition, which is universal. Uh, and so uh, we are looking at those aspects of our human and natural experiences that are universal and recurring uh, across all cultures, all times, and all places, but given different manifestation. Yeah. So all that being said, my mother, uh, as a woman and as a mother, of course, inherently embodied the archetypes, but they come in different ways and different degrees of, of power and strength for all of us. So uh, my mother certainly embodied Demeter, the mother goddess archetype in several ways. Um, she was a very devoted mother. She worked hard as she was able to, um, given the limitations of her education and her own upbringing. She tried to be a very uh, tried to be a loyal and devoted mother, and I saw that and I appreciated that. At the same time, uh, we had quite a number of um, family traumas and tragedies, uh, both transgenerationally that came in from previous uh, from ancestors mm -hmm. and uh, my parents when they were young and when I was young and my early life. So not only did my mother have some of the Demeter very protective uh, overly attentive mother yeah. Worrying about uh, <laughs> us in every little step of life. She also had the Demeter characteristic of being in deep, deep grief for all the things that went wrong in our lives. For in her childhood, um, she had only one sibling, one older brother who was a medic at the Battle of the Bulge. And he came home physically, but he didn't not he never came home. Mm -hmm. um, and we've talked in the past about uh, the impact of wars on uh, soul wounds. So... My uncle, who was my godfather, was very soul-wounded from war. And my mother uh, left him when she was about 10 years old. He went away to war, and the brother never came. The, the healthy, sane brother never came back. Right. So right. my mother, from that, from other matters, uh, when I was a young child, um, there was a family business. My father and grandparents um, owned a Kosher delicatessen in the Bronx under the elevated subway together. Oh, I want and a new burned. pickle, a new dill pickle <laughs> right now. Yeah, you sure do. I I remember them fondly. My mouth is watering just at the mention. Yeah. Every table on that little deli had a big pickle jar. Oh, you didn't boy. have to ask for them. They were always there and you could devour them to get started. Yeah. Uh, anyway, my mother was in deep and chronic grief the way Demeter was. Uh, because um, as a mother, uh, as a sibling, uh, through the hard times they went through and our entire family went through, she was really in grief and despair, so much so that uh, she lost her faith from all of these traumas. So like Demeter, she was, if we remember the myth, when Persephone was taken to the underworld, Demeter sat at the entrance to the cave to the underworld, and she grieved. She grieved, grieved, grieved so deeply that life stopped. My mother's grief was that way. Wow. She was really shattered by grief. You and I would say her soul was wounded from too much grief. She lost pieces of herself. 
and she was really in chronic grief and despair much of her life. And so we would say that that's the shadow of, of the mother archetype, that she didn't have the counterbalancing positive forces would be really present, but she was always, she was present in her sorrow, in her grief. She went as far as saying, uh, fearing that our family had been cursed. And hearing that growing up was a deep wound because, oh my gosh, this is built into the universe somehow. This is a curse from the divine. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very, very hard to get over that and to believe our family had... Um, had a good future. Which, uh, which, so, which, which of her powers would you say you took on and incorporated? This also comes from partially from motherhood. Um, also, I would say she didn't seem to be a sexy lover, but as she had Aphrodite powers because beauty was very important to her. And she kept our home and our, as we were poor, but she still kept our home and our garden well. She kept herself looking well. So uh, beauty and fitting in uh, were very uh, important to her. And she was really highly sensitive to other people's suffering. Um, other women in the neighborhood always came to my mother to confess. And it's not that she had great wisdom, but she had a big heart. And so the, the lover part of Aphrodite that was compassionate to others, the gentle part of Artemis, not the tough uh, huntress part, but the gentle protector and care, caretaker of other young of children and uh, young living things. My mother had that. And as a sorrowing Demeter, she was very sensitive, even hypersensitive to people's grief. And that all awakened a profound degree of compassion and kindness toward others in me. Yeah, so, I think so. Uh, I think we, we can see echoes of that throughout your life. Uh, <clears throat> the, the powerful influence. Let's jump to um, another a wonderful story in your book that really impressed me where you talk about being 10 years old, you're growing up in New York, and and you remember so vividly going to the library to get your first, I guess, adult library card, because up to that point, you were kind of restricted in terms of what books you were allowed to, uh, to, to and what levels of the library you could go to. And so you're full of excitement, and you describe an experience, which sounds very dramatic, where you say a book either falls off or jumps off the shelf. It's not sure, clear how it happened. It's a little dreamlike, I guess, in memory. Yes. But, but here's this book in your hands that kind of comes to you off the shelf, and it's the Iliad of all things. Yes. And... To, I wonder if, if to you, that to me, that sort of seemed to have the element of what uh, Campbell calls the call. And oh, yes. I didn't know it at the time, but it definitely yeah. had that, uh, the, the characteristics of the call. Uh, several matters about 
that memory. Uh, again, uh, both of us are concerned about uh, trauma work and, and do it in our therapy practice. I just want to share with our listeners that that memory of being 10 years old was so deep and impact, impactful that as soon as we mention it, it's like I'm there, I'm in that library again. That's and my so, feeling, yeah. And what we mean by traumatic imagery is not necessarily destructive or harmful imagery. It's piercing. It's piercing to our core. Mm -hmm. So I remember that. We don't have the, a word in English. I talk about that in the book. We should have a word for a piercing event that is fully um, positive. Yeah, yeah. I think trauma is a negative word. We need a word. In Greek, they have the word vioma, B-I-O-M-A. So, and bio is uh, our prefix also for, for life. So a vioma is a life-enhancing experience. A travma is a life-harming experience. We need something like that in English. This experience was a, definitely a vioma for me. Um, and I, I remember it so vividly. I know I didn't take that book off the shelf. For our audience, I was, uh, where I grew up in New York City, uh, there's a, a two-story library about a mile from my house. Downstairs was for children and upstairs was for the adults. And at 10 years old, we could get our adult library card. I did spend much time upstairs before I turned 10, but I couldn't take anything home. Uh -huh. So my 10th birthday was really exciting. It was a rite of passage. What is going to be the very first adult library book that I'm allowed to take away, that's going to be in my possession for a month, that I'm going to immerse in? And I really, I was interested in many different things, and I had no idea what book that would be. I was wandering the stacks. In that library, they were really floor to ceiling, and I remember being through two stacks that went up to the ceiling and somehow a book came, fell off from a, a higher stack, uh, higher than I could reach. And I really don't know how. I didn't see any other people. Uh, I do consider it a synchronistic event now. It sure. was, as you're rightly indicating, it seemed to be a, a calling and prophetic for my life's work. So the book was the Iliad, and I even remember it was a large, red leather-bound, hardcover edition that had pretty vivid pen and ink drawings throughout. I was enchanted with it, but, but it fell into my hands, and I have no idea how or why, but I said yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you said yes in a big way, because you I go on did. to say that for the next many decades, maybe half of a century, you devoted yourself to becoming Greek. To becoming Greek and, as you know and we've shared, to learning how to work effectively with warriors who have been through their own forms of Iliad. And, yeah, the learning, from, and learning from the, the Greeks, um, yes, that... I said uh, I wanted to become Greek, and that was my first introduction to the Greek tradition because I don't have any Greek blood, um, and I was not introduced to the tradition before that book. And uh, like every little boy, you know, I played war games, and 
listen to war stories when I could hear them, but I had no idea that it would become a specialty. That right. I was called to serve warriors. So in both ways, becoming Greek, um, so it's actually, I'm 71 now, so I'll be 72 in April, so it, it will be 62 years ago that that happened. Wow, wow. And, and it really indeed, sets the pattern for so much of your life that follows because yeah. you you go on to learn Greek, to learn to speak Greek, to read Greek, to travel all over Greece, to go to all the ancient sites. Uh, but one of the key words in your title, book title, is a pilgrimage. And you become kind of a, a pilgrim in Greece as well as in the wider world as well. And um, so it's a, it's a remarkable story because it it's so mythical it's really a mythical story that uh, you are living your own myth and you're living the Greek myth. And you tell a story in there about, um, you know, sometimes people ask you, well, what is it about Greece? You know, what's the big deal about Greece? And, and what does it mean to be Greek? And what does it mean to be American? And you talk about a friend that you had who was of Greek descent uh, but spent a lot of time in America making money, and yes. uh, and then returned to Greece. I think his name is uh, Constant Constantinos. So is that? That's right. Yeah, yes. and uh, you quote him as saying, "America gives you everything, but steals your soul. Greece gives you nothing but your soul." <laughs> what a quote! What what a quote! So expand on that a little bit, if you can. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you for inviting uh, this uh, area of exploration. Huh. This is hard for us to believe. Um, unfortunately, there's a new... Uh, I just came back from Greece um, the middle of December, so about a month ago. There's a word, uh, a bastardized English word circulating there to describe what's happening in our culture. Uh, the Greek people say they're really disturbed because America is dumbifying itself. Yeah, unfortunately. We, we use the phrase dumbing down. Yeah. The reason I'm bringing that up is because we don't have it or, or rarely have it anymore, but the degree to which the Greek people still in large part live spiritual lives, live by their souls, live by their ancient wisdom rely on their tradition thousands of years old and really live it and b believe in it is extraordinary. So, for example, um, well, I sat at dinner with a retired postman uh, last month. So he's a, he's a postal worker. He was just a clerk. We had the longest, deepest conversation about oh. the specifics of Stoic philosophy and this particular philosophers that you could imagine huh. with a postal clerk. Uh, another trip, I was on, on Crete, where Constantinos is from, by the way, and uh, I, early morning I, w I went to the, the grave of Nikos Kazantzakis, the great writer, 
Catholic store, but the Greek and many other important books, Last Temptation of Christ. I was up there for dawn early in the morning. The only other person around was a garbage man who was pushing his old garbage can on wheels and yeah. sweeping the street. We talked for about two hours about Kazantzakis. This man was an amateur Kazantzakis scholar who had read yeah. all the books, read all the scholarship, visited him everywhere in Crete. And this gentleman's words were, I'm so glad to meet you here because you also know that it's not in the museums or the ancient sites, but the real spirit of Crete and everything that we mean to humanity is right here in Kazantzakis' writings at his grave and the spirit of Crete is here and alive and well. So these are just two small examples. Yeah. The people are really vital. Um, many people do believe in the old gods and goddesses, not necessarily literally in a fundamentalist way. Some people do. And the religion of the 12 Olympians is actually in recent years uh, was legalized in Greece. So there are people who are worshiping Zeus and Hera and the other uh, oh, dozen. Wow. Um, a few of them take it literally, but many, many, many of them take it metaphorically. And Greek people will report encounters or events or synchronistic experiences they've had that cannot be explained rationally or logically. Uh, and so they say, what we, the powers that we used to know as the gods and goddesses are still alive and they're still here and our land and the ancient sites are still vital and they still appear to us in dreams and in other strange events that we can't explain. Uh, you know that I work in the Asclepian dream healing tradition. So it's not only that I work, uh, I have studied those practices and I replicate what was called dream incubation like going on a vision quest to seek what Jung called big dreams. In addition to that, I've been collecting dreams that the Greek people have spontaneously, and they have so many transpersonal dreams or big dreams. Wow. They have so many. Um, one family I know on Crete, also on Crete, um, the family I know had a cousin who was missing for several days, and they didn't know why or what happened. Um, and one of the children, a teenage boy, had a dream that in the dream, a man who looked like a priest or a doctor came and appeared before him and told him, sadly, his cousin had had a bad car accident and the car had gone off a cliff and where to find it. They followed the dream and they did find the car wreck and the poor man's body. Wow. Yeah. That was revealed through a dream. Uh, another family I know um, that their son had a really rare inner ear infection. Doctors couldn't find it and the boy was sent home and we said, we don't know what's happening. He may be going deaf. Just go home and take care of him the best way you can. The mother had a dream that one of the not very well-known Cretan uh, saints from Greece, uh, but the saint came to her and told her about this inner ear infection and to take the boy back to the, the doctors and where it is and they'll find it. 
So I could go on and on and on with these types of experiences. My point is that what we call the god and goddess powers from ancient Greece are still alive and well and strong and accessible to Greek people and accessible to us as pilgrims if we go on sincere spiritual quest or pilgrimage there and find them. So uh, I've had lots of those strange experiences myself. I'm not surprised. Uh, and, and as I say, I, I facilitate them for travelers, and I also study and collect them among the Greeks. Yeah, yeah. what a wonderful hobby. <laughs> I'm not mm-hmm. sure hobby is the right word, but uh, <clears throat> one of the, the things that came through in your discussion of the Asclepian uh, t- uh, dream temples was what an earnest quest it was. It wasn't just, oh, let's go and spend the night and and have a dream and we'll come back with a big insight. It was uh, a long, arduous attempts to contact that place in oneself. It wasn't just like going to a weekend workshop. Oh, yes, that's very true. And with all due respect for our colleagues and our clients who do go to weekend workshops. um, We could have a long discussion about whether such things have become too easy. People are really hungry, desperately hungry, as both of us would affirm, for genuine spiritual transpersonal connection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Coming home again to the cosmos, we desperately need that. So many, many people will go to weekend workshops for dream work, uh, fly across the country to go on a vision quest with a shamanic practitioner. Um, But okay, I'm gone for three days and I've been on a vision quest and then I fly home. That's, I would suggest that's not the way to do it. Um, And I uh, also, let me add that the, we both know this too in our uh, psychology and psychiatry fields. psychedelics and the use of uh, sacred medicines for altered states of consciousness experiences uh, is becoming popular again, is being licensed and legalized in some places. Many, many people go down to um, Central and South America for ayahuasca journeys. Right. That's harder and costs more and is a bigger effort. That's good. What I want to, I'm going to apply this to Greece. In the Asclepian dream healing tradition, there were, that we, uh, scholarship and his, uh, research knows of over 320 Asclepian dream temples all over the Mediterranean world. Hmm. From Egypt all the way to the Iberian Peninsula and from um, like the Caspian Sea area all the way to Northern Africa. So this practice of going to a holistic healing sanctuary that were somewhat like ours in that they were really holistic. They had acupuncture and astrology and massage and nutrition and gymnastics and psychotherapy and dream work. Uh, they, They had everything that we would consider holistic practices. People stayed in there as long as they needed to. Everybody was welcome, emperors and slaves, men and women. You paid afterwards based on what you could afford. A slave could get a, give an apple 
for our dream healing experience, whereas an emperor would build a whole new building. And that was fine because that's all equal in the eyes of the divine, which argues that we and our colleagues should be taking sliding scales. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the, the med, the healing was accessible to everyone regardless of their social status or power. Yeah. Okay. In addition to that, so there were 320 dream healing sanctuaries and people from all over the Mediterranean world attended them. And we have records of about 2,000 years of these. Wow. From about yeah. 1400 BC to about 580. So people had to travel far, prepare for a long period of time, consult with uh, human helpers, uh, healers and helpers, and only turn to the divine powers when they reached the end of uh, what human help could do. So we are supposed to help each other and we're supposed to turn to transpersonal sources when we've reached the limits of our human ability and understanding. And uh, these dream temples facilitated what Jung would call big dreams, not the everyday little dreams, but the right. big one that gave us prescriptions for how to heal ourselves or actually that we saw the healing happen in the dream. And I have had a few of those dreams myself as well as facilitating them for others. I want to say that in addition to that, there were other forms of seeking non-normative states of consciousness for healing, for personal growth and transformation. So we've all heard of the Delphi Oracle, for example. Right. Delphi Oracle is famous in the Western world. Uh, and there too, it was hard to get there. It's in the mountains. Um, and it would take many days walking or traveling by donkey and, or boat and mountain climbing to get there. So people might go once in their lifetime, like, um, like the Hajj for Islamic people, going once to, in your lifetime, get to Mecca and do this sacred pilgrimage. The Delphi Oracle was usually like that, once in your lifetime, because it was so long and arduous and difficult mm -hmm. to get there. And you only brought the most compelling life questions. Uh, and so regarding the oracles, we're talking about the Delphi Oracle, but we know of over 200 oracular sites, again, all over the ancient world. So people, great and, and common, humble and wealthy and powerful people, would travel to the oracle sites of Delphi or any others to get guidance in the most difficult life questions, uh, or what are they called to do? Why are they here? So people did not settle for the ordinary and just for adjusting to uh, the frustrations of daily life that we all have, but they wanted to know their purpose and have a divine connection and divine guidance and have the sense that they were fulfilling the divine mission that they are here for. We hear that very much from Socrates. And Socrates should not only be studied as philosophy, but Socrates told us um, in his defense when he was being uh, on trial, he referred to it that he didn't even go to Delphi. One of his friends went to Delphi and asked, is there anyone wiser than Socrates? And the oracle said, no, no one is wiser.
The friend brought it back to Socrates, and that became the most important moment of his life. The message that gave him, uh, confirmed his calling, and that he spent the rest of his life following. Hmm. In fact, he was trying to prove it wrong, because he said, um, <laughs> translated as the only thing I know is that I know nothing. It's a... Uh, and it's yeah. a so-so translation of what he said, which is really untranslatable. And it means something like, um, it is in knowing that we realize we cannot know. Reason and knowing can't get us to the ultimate, ultimate wisdom. It's limited and we have to eventually turn ourselves up over to the transpersonal, to divine revelation. So yeah. Socrates, in his philosophical inquiry questioning people to their depths uh, was following Apollo's command for him. I say you are the wisest. Prove me wrong, the God said. <laughs> and uh, so he spent his life doing that. Um, back to that word calling. That was his calling. And Apollo was his God. And Apollo was the God of reason and of truth uh, and of medicine, and uh, the friend of the muses. So Socrates was practicing all of those. And he he thought, of, uh, he had kept having a recurring dream, practiced the art of the muses. He tried to make philosophy that beautiful. And he wasn't, uh, and for us, um, the Socratic, Socratic dialogue, uh, Ask a question, get the answer, ask another question based on that question and keep asking and asking and asking until we get to the bottom truth. Well, my friend, that's what you and I do. That's the root of psychotherapy also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you mentioned healing earlier and your book is about healing. Uh, so uh, talk about healing versus cure. Okay. That's a really a good and important distinction. Uh, if I have a cancer and I have surgery for the cancer and all of the um, all of the uh, abnormal cells are taken out of my body and I'm clean, then uh, the surgeon may likely say I'm cured. Unless there's a recurrence, but I'm cured of the cancer, it's gone from my system. Healing uh, is something different. Healing is transform is is uh, a cure. We imagine is absolute. The condition is over. If there's a recurrence, well, we have to deal with that. But we think of ourselves as not having the condition anymore. Healing is the long, slow process of transforming ourselves internally such that the conditions that created our illness or affliction are no longer necessary. So I'll personalize this as well. Um, I'll, I'll be 72 in a few months. Um, I had a really bad breakdown. I don't even know if it was an accident, uh, but I guess I had a sports accident when I was 65. Um, but I had a really bad back injury or breakdown. Uh, the medical 
profession said there was nothing they could do. They gave me um, uh, steroid shots in my spine, which didn't do anything. And then they wanted to operate. Uh, and I refused back surgery. And so the healing is, no, I'm not going to accept uh, spinal surgery that you claim might cure the condition. Might, might not. Back yeah. surgery is very difficult and... Um, very mixed results that people right. get from it. Right. Yeah. So, and it's my lower back. I wasn't going to re, uh, risk surgery down there as a man unless I was absolutely essential uh, to life or death. So I refused surgery and I looked for healing. In healing, I'll share this quickly. Um, I assumed that, uh, I hoped and assumed that I could change my internal conditions and my lifestyle such that uh, I could heal my, my lower back, even though I was really crippled. Really, I was, um, I deteriorated to needing canes even for a while I was in a, a wheelchair and I was still very stubborn about healing naturally. I was actually, uh, we shared about my journeys back to Vietnam. I actually had an Asclepian dream healing on a journey to Vietnam for my back. So uh, we, I had my group in the Mekong Delta. We were staying with a Viet Cong veteran who's become a dear friend who always hosts our groups and is a beloved, like a long lost brother to our veterans. He just showers them in love. So there's another way that pilgrimage is healing. When we go to places of former conflict and we enter into deep loving friendships mm. and help each other heal. So that happens in Vietnam. All right. So this gentleman's name is Tom Tien and my group was staying in his little um, camp on the Mekong River. I was sleeping in a cot that was right next to the river. And uh, I was... I was on canes and I could barely walk without assistance and a lot of pain. In the middle of the night, in this pitch black Mekong Delta night, I had a dream that a giant snake came up out of the river, climbed up the pilings that held up our camp and climbed up onto my cot and I can I could point right where it is and sunk its fangs right into my left thigh. Wow. And I felt it in the dream. It was really painful. I woke up with a lot of pain where the snake bit me. I had no idea what happened or what to expect, but this was like the middle of the night, about 3 a.m. When I got out of my cot at 6 a.m., I could not only walk, I was pain-free, I could run, I could dance, I could climb hills. Wow. I didn't need my canes. And for a month, I was completely pain-free and cane-free. And this is, uh, the dream was in the traditional Asclepian uh, uh, format of a giant snake coming from the depths, from the unconscious, yeah, from the water wow. world. From yeah. the, the tonic, 
and oh. visiting me in the middle of the night and biting me and immediately giving a healing. That dream healing wore off after about a month. However, it proved to me that this was possible, that I could have non-surgical, non-intrusive healings. And most importantly, my body could do this. That if I stay with this, my body can readapt to my condition and can, I can learn to walk again and I can heal the conditions that caused my illness. And so uh, that encouraged me to stay with it, uh, which I have. And now I have neuropathy in my feet but it's beside, and a little pain in my lower back. But besides that, that's all. And it's yeah. really it's, – it, it seems to be a miracle cure. Yeah, uh, yeah. And there are other things that happened along the way. Um, I had more – I got more help in Greece – uh, with with this affliction, including other dreams uh, that also showed me some of the lifestyle changes I had to make. And I'll connect it to mythology also because in my book, I introduce a concept. Actually, I didn't create this concept. Uh, a friend and colleague of ours named uh, Dennis Patrick Slattery is also a wonderful mythologist and teacher and healer. Uh, he had a life-threatening illness that he healed partly mythically, and he wrote uh, several articles on this. That he introduced a concept called he called the biomythic narrative. Huh. Biomythic narrative. In other words, find out in our biology what myths, what gods and goddesses are active. Uh, and work with those imaginally at the same time as you're working with your biological well-being. So, for example, with my collapsed back, well, I used the Colossus of Rhodes, which uh, we, we know was built to create a, uh, a great victory, but it collapsed after only 100 years. It wasn't there for very long. So I had to ask myself, I used, was using that story, what am I trying to... How is it that I'm trying to stand tall like a colossus and do enormously difficult, challenging work until yeah. I don't even realize how weak and tired I'm getting and the weight of it causes me to collapse? Yeah. That's yeah. one set of myths I used. Uh, another, another myth I used was the prodigal son from the Bible, uh, where at, uh, in my family of origin, I was the prodigal son taking care of everybody else. I was not the prodigal son. My brothers, who were wayward, went and had fun and did what they wanted to and got loved for it. And I was the oldest child and the good boy sta staying home and taking care of everybody else and doing the hard work and never being uh, recognized or rewarded or honored for it. And I realized, oh, not only as a child, but my whole life, I've always taken on too many burdens such that I've been crushing my spine with yeah. too much psychic weight and I need yeah. to adjust my lifestyle to not carry so many burdens without adequate support. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my biomythic narrative, I crushed my spine, not just DNA, not just chance and not uh -huh. just that accident, but 
I've been living this way and crushing my spine. So um, Hippocrates, the founder of um, scientific medicine, he was a son and a grandson of Asclepian priests. And though he did not practice dream healing the way Asclepius taught and his father and grandfather did, Hippocratic medicine was very much in that theory. Uh, and one of Hippocrates' teachings, one of Hippocrates' teachings was that, I love this, it's really important, and we, can, we use it all the time in our psychotherapy work. Uh, consciously or not, Hippocrates said, all illness begins in the soul and ends in the body. It begins in the soul and ends in the body. Mm -hmm. When we look for physical healing, we're only looking at the end product. Mm -hmm. I look in myself and in the people I work with, I look for the origins of the affliction. My illness, my back injury is has been forming my entire life. All It begins in the soul carrying too much weight, too much responsibility, hyper-responsibility for everyone and everything such yeah. that I carried crushing weight, and lots of us as therapists do. Yeah, yeah. So when I change my soul's relationship to my perceived uh, responsibilities and burdens, then I'm changing the balance of how I live and carry my life, and I have really been making my life lighter. So as I'm healing my back, I, I'm changing my lifestyle and healing the way I do everything. Um, so so that's one small aspect of my biomythic narrative. Yeah, I really appreciate your sharing the, all of that story because it's uh, personal, very, very revealing, uh, <clears throat> not as heroic a story as you might desire to share uh although it, uh, there is there great. is there is some of that in there um i'm wondering about the writing of the book did the writing of the book was the writing of the book at all uh i mean if i think about writing a book that feels like a heavy burden but i'm wondering if if it was not a heavy burden for you but somehow helped with the lightning this is my hope oh, for you. Yeah, uh, that's very true. And um, I want to say to any of our listeners, any of the arts, the expressive arts that you have can lighten your burden. And certainly as therapists, we uh, it's valuable to introduce them to our, our clients. Use the arts to lighten your burden. So yes, for sure. Thank you for asking that, Dave. Um, Writing lightens my burdens in many ways. Um, mm -hmm. As you know, I've written uh, several books. Half of my books are about uh, war and veterans and war healing. I need to write as a way to share the stories that have accumulated in my psyche and get them right. out of the private space and into the public and the shared space and deliver them to our tribe. Yeah. So yeah. the... the the, the uh, practice of sacred witnessing, all of the arts, not just writing, but all of the arts allow us to, uh, to, to witness and to externalize the stories. Regarding writing this book in particular, uh, yeah, 
um, I wrote much of it during the pandemic lockdown. And so I wasn't able to travel physically. And so it gave me the joy of traveling imaginally, reliving these experiences as I was writing about them and not feeling so isolated because um, stuck in the house um, during our collective quarantine. But in my writing, I could go to Delphi and the PWs yeah. and, <laughs> and it became, you read the book, so you, you know how vivid it became. And I did a, a lot of very lyrical, um, poetic writing in order to really um, give the readers uh, a virtual experience of being there. I want the book to be a pilgrimage for the readers whether or not they ever go to Greece or any of these places. Yeah, yeah. You know, we haven't, in all of this, I haven't mentioned the title of the book. Yeah, and the title is Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. And uh, the book really delivers on the title. It's all of that's in there. And, uh, Thank you. And I think you do take us on a kind of uh, a real kind of journey and an inspiring journey at that. Um, what have we not touched on here that maybe you want to make sure that we do touch on? Oh, sure. Thank you. Uh, I would like to share with our listeners that much of the wisdom that we attribute to the modern world and modern sciences or social sciences existed in ancient Greek, Greece and was available. So a lot of what we consider new is not new. It's, yeah, right. uh, it's rebooted. It's rebooted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in our field, for example, we have the concept of moral injury. Really important, especially in our work with uh, trauma and trauma survivors. Right, and right. Really, really important. Ah. Well, Socrates was teaching what moral injury was, and Jesus was teaching what moral injury was. We've just given it new social scientific terminology. Yeah. Um, the Greeks knew about the, what we call the tripartite brain. The Greeks dis distinguished between the animal soul, which would be the medulla, the primitive part, the emotional soul, and the intellectual soul. And, and that corresponds to the three parts of the brain. And they thought about the relations they had to have with each other. Mm -hmm. And they had exercises and teachings and practicings for putting them back into proper relation. Well, today our field is crazy about brain repair. Yeah. Uh, they did it. They had it. Only it wasn't with machinery and it was with humanistic and real people practices. Uh, I could go on and on and on about this. Uh, left brain, right brain. Well, Apollo and Dionysus, they had them, and yeah. they had they had massive public and communal rituals uh, for for the general population being able to use these and be in uh, imbalance with them. Uh, and so, um, and medicine and healing were originally. Parts of philosophy, which you and I, as humanists and transpersonal uh, practitioners, would love that. Of course, it's all part of 
wisdom and that when we're practicing psychology and psychiatry, we're actually trying to uh, bring back the best wisdom that humanity is capable of and befriending it and befriending each other and putting those things that are at odds within us uh, into balance and making friends again for the competing elements. All of this is in ancient Greek uh, philosophy and in the original uh, philosophy of medicine. I quoted Hippocrates earlier about um, all illness begins in the soul. I'd like to share one more of his really extraordinarily insightful uh, statements that give all of us as therapists significant direction for how to help our charges. Great. Hippocrates also said, let me get it just right. <laughs> See, we are getting old. Um, now, I'm not getting the exact quote. He said, um, he said, illnesses began, begin as small sins that we keep repeating and repeating throughout our life cycle until they finally accumulate in inside us enough to erupt as an illness. Yeah. So, you know, one glass of wine or two glasses of wine or a couple of glasses of wine every night. Okay. Small sin every day, too much of it over a long period of time. And you might become an alcoholic. It might captivate you. That's just one example. Eating poorly. Oh, the sugar's not going to hurt me tonight. Another Dunkin' Donuts not going to hurt me tonight or tomorrow when I drive to work or next week or next month. Oh, and then I have a heart attack from the accumulated sins. Um, I worked as, uh, I had a psychotherapy patient a number of years ago who was a cardiologist who came in for therapy because he was so frustrated because he said he was in middle age and he said, I can't be a cardiologist anymore. I wanted to heal the human heart. And as a cardiologist, all I'm doing is trying, he said the same thing as Hippocrates, trying to repair the damage that people have been doing to their hearts their entire life because of the way they've lived. So he actually quit cardiology and he went back uh, and did his residency in psychiatry. I want to heal the human heart it's not by being uh, a physician of the physical heart. It has yeah. to be to be a psyche, a psychiatros, a doctor of the soul, helping people heal their invisible hearts. So all of this wisdom is in ancient Greece with extraordinary teachings and practices for how we can achieve it, how we can uh, activate it in our lives. And when we, uh, so we can, uh, we can access dreams through the ancient Greek practices in ways that are bigger and more profound than Freud and Jung taught us. We can restore the healing dimensions of theater. This theater was originally theater, a yes. sacred practice under Dionysus, and it was for communal healing. We can restore sacred theater practices. 
we can encourage people to seek oracles. Lots of people use um, tarot cards or the I Ching or runes or medicine cards. That's great. Some therapists use them. That's great. That's really great. Encourage people to use them, to free associate with them, and to spontaneously, with the therapist or on their own, free associate to what these might mean. Yeah. Maybe I can't yeah. go to Delphi, but I can throw the I Ching tonight. Right. And I, can right. Take, I can take non-rational forms of guidance very, very seriously as the ancients did, not just the Greeks, but all traditional cultures. So all of this is, and more is included in Greek practices and all of this. How it was done in the ancient world and how people do it today is all uh, included in my book. With Somehow you got you. all of that into your book, which is not like one might think it would be a huge fat tome. I actually got a copy of it here, if I can show I don't know if it'll come through or not. The a images. Away. Yeah, it's yes, it's it's very readable and digestible. To totally. Less than three hundred pages. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's totally. well written. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we could go on and on, but Doctor Ed Tech, I want to. It's always great to talk to you. I'm so glad that you've done this and shared it with us and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future. The God's willing. <laughs> uh, so God's thanks willing. for being my, my guest again on Shrinkwrap Radio. You're very welcome, Dr. Dave. Thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the broad, broad scope of guests that you have. I mean, you really live up to the humanistic um, ideal. of. Thank you. Exploring every dimension of yeah. humanity and having experts from all of the, those disciplines come in and contribute to our human story. So bless you and thank you. Thank you. Feel better and I look forward to our next conversation. I'm so glad I was able to go ahead with my interview with Ed Tick, Ph.D. I've been sick for a couple of weeks with a persistent cough that makes speech difficult. Every time I try to speak, the cough reflex kicks in. If you watch the full video, you can see me struggling with several coughing fits. If you listen to the podcast audio, you'll find that I was able to edit out the worst of them. The reason I'm so glad I was able to push through these challenges is that Ed is one of my all-time heroes. This was our third interview, and I thought I already knew him. Was I ever wrong? What I had known about Ed from his previous books, his reputation, and our earlier interviews barely scratched the surface. This newest book of his is such a revelation. It's not quite out yet. The title is Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage. I believe it will be released toward the end of March 2023. If you're at all interested in soul, depth psychology, transpersonal psychology, myth, or healing, you should just go ahead and pre-order it. It's that good. 
When I first saw the title, I was already excited. I knew that Ed's healing work, taking traumatized Vietnam-era vets on pilgrimages back to Vietnam, was rooted in a Jungian understanding of the importance of myth, dreams, and ritual, and so on. I just didn't know how Ed had come by this wisdom. This latest book, Soul Medicine, is not just about these topics. Rather, it is a deeply revealing personal account of Ed's own mythic journey. As I thought about our upcoming interview, I felt really challenged as to how I might engage him at that deep soul level rather than just chatting about the catalog of fascinating topics in the book. I knew that Ed's mother had died just two weeks ago. I thought that it might be a good bridge between us to get into the process of the book. I hoped it wouldn't be too intrusive or offensive to join him there. My first real question in the interview was to note in the book he speaks of goddess powers as offering a kind of archetypal shorthand to explore clusters of feminine attributes. So I asked, what goddess powers come to mind in regard to his mother? Rather than feeling offended, he immediately recognized I was wanting to draw him into deep engagement. Initially, he spoke at a theoretical level about the notion of goddess powers, but eventually moved into the specifics of his mother and their troubled relationship over the years, her chronic sadness, and the generational wounds in their family, suggesting that their family was living under a curse. I won't attempt to recap the details here. You can hear them in the interview. The second entry point for me was my invitation for him to share slash relive the powerful story in the book of his excitement on his 10th birthday of being able to upgrade his library card to adult privileges. This meant he was able to go up to the top floor, select any book he wanted to take home for a month. At this point, his recollection becomes dreamlike of a volume jumping or falling off a high shelf into his hands without any sense of him having chosen it. The volume was a richly illustrated version of the Iliad, the archetypal story of a heroic warrior journey. Indeed, this struck me as a vivid example of what Joseph Campbell describes as the call. In hindsight, Ed agrees, although he didn't recognize it as such at 10 years old. But that moment seems powerfully pivotal as Ed was to go on to become spiritually Greek, traveling to that land many times in the coming years, learning to speak Greek, leading tours and workshops there, familiarizing himself with all the ancient healing sites there, and more. As the interview goes on, there are more moments of deep self-disclosure, evidencing a mix of courage and humility, especially as Ed speaks of struggles around aging and infirmity. In the end, Ed continues to stand tall as one of my heroes, a fellow traveler on the path, and a friend in arms. 
Hi, Dr. Dave. My name is Hannah Bogan, and I'm a speech-language pathologist at Communication Works in Oakland, California, so right in your neck of the woods. I recently discovered your podcast, and I am so incredibly thankful to have found them. I've actually devoured nine in the last week. Uh, I am, although I'm a speech-language pathologist, I, I actually don't specialize in speech and language disorders as much as social cognitive and social regulation disorders. I work with preschoolers through young adults, helping them with executive functioning challenges and really any difficulties they might have that make it hard for them to accomplish their goals in a, in a social context. I absolutely love your interviews and your podcasts, and I can't tell you how much they inform both my professional and personal lives. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Dave, for the commitment that you have to the broad field of psychology and especially a huge thank you from those of us who seem to have a foot in psychology and a foot in some other related field. I'll definitely be becoming an ongoing contributor to your programming. Thanks, Dr. Dave. Thank you, speech therapist Hannah Bogan. I love hearing from people such as yourself in allied professions. It's great that you're able to find material here that supports your own growth. Thanks for becoming a financial donor and encouraging others to follow suit. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks so much to my return guest and hero, Dr. Ed Tick, for his wonderful new book, Soul Medicine, Healing Through Dream Incubation, Visions, Oracles, and Pilgrimage, and for engaging with me so deeply. There's a hole in my schedule, and I don't have a guest for next week. Maybe that will give me the space I need to recover from this pesky cough. The following week, my guest will be clinical psychoanalyst Avgi Sakatipulo, discussing her book, Sexuality Beyond Consent. Avgi is a psychoanalyst and professor who works with transgender kids and their families. She brings incredible expertise and lots of valuable stories from the field of counseling to the table. She offers a startlingly fresh addition to contemporary discourse on sexuality and trauma, especially racial trauma. If you're willing to have many of your assumptions challenged and stretched, I hope you will join us then. And until then, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.